Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to episode 18 of Stories of Your and Yours. My name is Sean Ennis, and I thank you for joining me, as together we traverse the waters of this week's short stories. Now this week, like most weeks, we'll be starting the show with a review. This is an iTunes review, and while I generally get iTunes reviews read on the show pretty shortly after they're left, this one is a little bit older, because it is from the New Zealand iTunes store. Now, with this show being based in the U.S., I don't always see reviews from other countries, but once a month, when I get an email summary, I do see them. So if you've been listening outside the U.S., and I know there are some of you out there, and you weren't sure if your review would make it to the airwaves, fret not, because I see them all. Eventually. So with that being said, here's the review. A Refreshing Surprise by Nair Ladnar I am not a podcast aficionado, but found this particular podcast well-produced and easy to listen to. I especially like the notes or explanations given before some of the stories helping to convey details that some readers, like myself, may not understand or be familiar with. The narrator has a distinctive voice and reads well with a pleasant cadence. The added sound effects and music are not overly done and accentuate the stories well. Overall, listening to this podcast has been entertaining and pleasurable. But many thanks to Nair Ladnar for the review, and you may recognize that username, and that's because Nair Ladnar contributed a short story called Subject C to last week's show. Now, if this is your first time listening, or if you missed that episode for some reason, you can find last week's episode, along with all of our episodes, wherever you found this one. And if you haven't heard them all yet, I'd encourage you to do so when you have the time. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, Sean, you do accents, right? Now, why didn't you do this last review in a New Zealand accent? Well, I'll tell you why. I can't do a New Zealand accent. I love that accent. It's great. But I can't do it. It would just sound bad, and I'm not going to do it. And plus, you'll be hearing plenty of accents today, but uh, that's coming down the line. We'll get to that. Now, of course, remember to follow the show on social media, whether that's on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at SYYpodcast. And you can contact me through any of those methods or through SYYpodcast at gmail.com with requests or with your own original short stories that you would like to have read on the show. Big shout out this week to Taft, Heather, Steve, and Dwight, who recently liked the show on Facebook, and to Cassie and Jessica, to whom I talked about The Empty House a couple of weeks ago. If you haven't liked or followed yet on any platform, drop in and say hello. And by the way, I record these intros ideally a week or two ahead of time, if not more, so if there's a bit of a delay in these shoutouts, don't let that stop you from interacting with the show. I want to hear what you have to say. Now before we get to this week's show, let's hear from this week's podcast partner. Hi, I'm Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast, and I'm excited to tell you about my brand new podcast called It's Haunted, What Now? It's a podcast that brings you true stories about haunted objects and the owners who unknowingly welcome them into their lives. Join me as I share these creepy, spooky, and downright terrifying stories. You can find It's Haunted, What Now? on your favorite podcatcher or at hauntedpod.com. I gotta tell you, the podcast partner is quickly becoming one of my favorite features on the show because it's a way for me to discover new podcasts. I love podcasts myself, as you may have guessed by me actually hosting my own. 
And uh, finding new independent podcasts is a lot of fun. There's a lot of good content out there. There's a billion podcasts now. Everybody has one. But if you can sort through all the noise, there are some real gems out there. And of course, you know, liking the show on social media, following the show, retweeting, sharing, all that kind of jazz, and leaving iTunes reviews. All that helps people who haven't heard of this show yet to sort out their own noise. So continue to do that. Now, with all that in the rear view, on to this week's episode. This week, we've got two more short stories for you, and for the first time, these will be stories originally written in a language other than English. The author in question is one Guy de Maupassant. Now, I will put this in as a disclaimer ahead of time. I speak German, and so my French accent, or my French (laughs) pronunciation, see, I can't even pronounce in English right now, my French pronunciation may slip into the German-sounding pronunciation, so if you notice that being the case at some point, just know I did my best. That being said, let's get into an introduction to Monsieur Maupassant. His full name, and stay with me now, is Henri René Albert Guy de Maupassant, and he lived from 1850 to 1893. Now, Guy lived with his mother and his brother after his parents separated when he was 11 years old due to his father having been abusive. Uh, It was also at his mother's insistence when, at 17 years old, he became somewhat of an apprentice to Gustave Flaubert, who was a novelist of the day and is best known for having written Madame Bovary. His association with Flaubert was very influential on him, which is understandable, of course, given his family situation and his interest in writing. De Maupassant had begun studying law in 1869, but his studies were interrupted by the outbreak of the Franco-Prussian War, where he volunteered until 1871. When he returned to Paris, he started working for the government, specifically in the Ministry of Marine, where his father was able to get him a position. De Maupassant loved being on the water, which is evident in some of his stories, and this was a good fit for him in the Ministry of Marine. As for his writing career, de Maupassant published a few stories under a pseudonym before his breakout story, Bol de Suif, was published in 1880, along with five other stories in a volume called Les Soirées de Medan, which was a group of stories about the Franco-Prussian War. This story is considered by many to be his masterpiece, though today's first story, The Necklace, is probably his most well-known in English-speaking circles. De Maupassant was very prolific for the following ten years, cranking out about 300 short stories, six novels, three travel books, and a book of poetry. His book is perhaps uh, best summarized by this passage on the Britannica website, uh, where it says, quote, Maupassant's work is thoroughly realistic. His characters inhabit a world of material desires and sensual appetites in which lust, greed, and ambition are the driving forces and any higher feelings are either absent or doomed to cruel disappointment. The tragic power of many of the stories derives from the fact that Maupassant presents his characters, poor people or rich bourgeoisie, as the victims of ironic necessity, crushed by a fate that they have dared to defy, yet still struggling against it hopelessly. End quote. His stories also tended to have surprise endings, which sometimes would twist the knife a bit deeper, so to say. So as you may have guessed, his stories are not always what one would call optimistic. Now, de Maupassant died in 1893 due to complications from syphilis, and the last few years of his life were pretty tragic, unfortunately. Uh, Following the untimely death of his younger brother in 1888, there was also some mental illness in there as well, and uh, just a, a sad story towards the end of his life. Now, as for this week's stories, 
The necklace first appeared on February 17, 1884 in Les Gaulois, which is a French daily newspaper. Les Gaulois featured several of de Maupassant's short stories over the years and was also where The Phantom of the Opera was first published between 1909 and 1910 as a serial. Le Figaro, another French paper, took over Les Gaulois in 1929, and that paper still runs to this day. Our second story, Found on a Drowned Man, is a story I actually couldn't find much history on. From what I've seen, it looks like it was published around 1884, but I'm not 100% sure there, and I think it's safe to assume it was probably uh, published in one of two periodicals, either the aforementioned Les Gaulois or in Guilblas. <laughs> That's a fun name, which was a literary publication that ran from 1879 to 1938, uh, with a hiatus in 1914 for World War I. Now, of course, there is the caveat in there that I may be mispronouncing that name, but we're gonna go with uh, we're gonna go with that Gilblois. So, while we don't have a full history this time, we've got enough to go on for now. And with that, let's get to this week's presentation. The Necklace by Guy de Maupassant The girl was one of those pretty and charming young creatures who sometimes are born, as if by a slip of fate, into a family of clerks. She had no dowry, no expectations, no way of being known, understood, loved, married by any rich and distinguished man, so she let herself be married to a little clerk of the Ministry of Public Instruction. She dressed plainly because she could not dress well but she was unhappy as if she had actually fallen from a higher station, since with women there is neither caste nor rank, for beauty, grace, and charm take the place of family and birth. Natural ingenuity, instinct for what is elegant, a supple mind, are their sole hierarchy, and often make of women of the people the equals of the very greatest ladies. Matilda suffered ceaselessly, feeling herself born to enjoy all delicacies and all luxuries, she was distressed at the poverty of her dwelling, at the bareness of the walls, at the shabby chairs, the ugliness of the curtains. All those things of which another woman of her rank would never have even been conscious tortured her and made her angry. The sight of the little Breton peasant who did her humble housework aroused in her disrepairing regrets and bewildering dreams. She thought of silent antechambers hung with oriental tapestry, illumined by tall bronze candelabra, and of two great footmen in knee-breeches who sleep in the big armchairs, made drowsy by the oppressive heat of the stove. She thought of long reception halls hung with ancient silk, of the dainty cabinets containing priceless curiosities, and of the little coquettish perfumed reception rooms made for chatting at five o'clock with intimate friends, with men famous and sought after, whom all women envy, and whose attention they all desire. When she sat down to dinner before the round table covered with a tablecloth in use three days, opposite her husband, who uncovered the soup tureen and declared with a delighted air, Ah, the good soup! I don't know anything better than that! She thought of dainty dinners, of shiny silverware, of tapestry that peopled the walls with ancient personages and with strange birds flying in the midst of a fairy forest, and she thought of delicious dishes served on marvelous plates, and of the whispered gallantries to which you listen with a sphinx-like smile while you are eating the pink meat of a trout or the wings of a quail. She had no gowns, no jewels, nothing. And she loved nothing but that. 
She felt made for that. She would have liked so much to please, to be envied, to be charming, to be sought after. She had a friend, a former schoolmate at the convent, who was rich, and whom she did not like to go to see any more because she felt so sad when she came home. But one evening her husband reached home with a triumphant air, holding a large envelope in his hand. There, said he, there is something for you. She tore the paper quickly and drew out a printed card which bore these words. The Minister of Public Instruction and Madame Georges Ramponneau request the honor of Monsieur and Madame Loiselle's company at the Palace of the Ministry on Monday evening, January 18th. Instead of being delighted, as her husband had hoped, she threw the invitation on the table crossly, muttering, What do you wish me to do with that? Why, my dear, I thought you would be glad. You never go out, and this is such a fine opportunity. I had great trouble to get it. Everyone wants to go. It is very select, and they are not giving many invitations to clerks. The whole official world will be there. She looked at him with an irritated glance and said impatiently, and what do you wish me to put on my back? He had not thought of that. He stammered. Why, the gown you go to the theater in, it looks very well to me. He stopped, distracted, seeing that his wife was weeping. Two great tears ran slowly from the corners of her eyes toward the corners of her mouth. What's the matter? He answered. By a violent effort, she conquered her grief and replied in a calm voice, while she wiped her wet cheeks. Nothing. Only I have no gown, and therefore I can't go to this ball. Give your card to some colleague whose wife is better equipped than I am. He was in despair. He resumed. Come, let us see, Matilda. How much would it cost a suitable gown, which you could use on other occasions, something very simple? She reflected several seconds, making her calculations and wondering also what sum she could ask without drawing on herself an immediate refusal and a frightened exclamation from the economical clerk. Finally, she replied, hesitating, I don't know exactly, but I think I could manage it with four hundred francs. He grew a little pale, because he was laying aside just that amount to buy a gun and treat himself to a little shooting next summer on the plain of Nanterre, with several friends who went to shoot larks there of a Sunday. But he said, very well. I will give you four hundred francs, and try to have a pretty gown. The day of the ball drew near, and Madame Loiselle seemed sad, uneasy, anxious. Her frock was ready, however. Her husband said to her one evening, What is the matter? Come, you have seemed very queer these last three days. And she answered, It annoys me not to have a single piece of jewelry, not a single ornament, nothing to put on. I shall look poverty-stricken. I would almost rather not go at all. You might wear natural flowers, said her husband. They are very stylish this time of year. For ten francs, you can get two or three magnificent roses. But she was not convinced. No, there's nothing more humiliating than to look poor among other women who are rich. How stupid you are, her husband cried. Go look up your friend, Madame Forestier, and ask her to lend you some jewels. You're intimate enough with her to do that? She uttered a cry of joy. True, I never thought of it. The next day she went to her friend and told her of her distress. Madame Forestier went to a wardrobe with a mirror, took out a large jewel box, brought it back, opened it, and said to Madame Loiselle, Choose, my dear. 
She saw first some bracelets, then a pearl necklace, then a Venetian gold cross set with precious stones of admirable workmanship. She tried on the ornaments before the mirror, hesitated, and could not make up her mind to part with them, to give them back. She kept asking, "'Haven't you any more?' "'Why, yes. Look further. I don't know what you like.' Suddenly she discovered, in a black satin box, a superb diamond necklace, and her heart throbbed with an immoderate desire. Her hands trembled as she took it. She fastened it round her throat, outside her high-necked waist, and was lost in ecstasy at her reflection in the mirror. Then she asked, hesitating, filled with anxious doubt, "'Will you lend me this? Only this?' "'Why, yes, certainly!' She threw her arms round her friend's neck, kissed her passionately, then fled with her treasure. The night of the ball arrived. Madame Loiselle was a great success. She was prettier than any other woman present, elegant, graceful, smiling, and wild with joy. All the men looked at her, asked her name, sought to be introduced. All the attachés of the cabinet wished to waltz with her. She was remarked by the minister himself. She danced with rapture, with passion, intoxicated by pleasure, forgetting all in the triumph of her beauty, in the glory of her success. In a sort of cloud of happiness comprised of all this, homage, admiration, these awakened desires, and of that sense of triumph which is so sweet to a woman's heart. She left the ball about four o'clock in the morning. Her husband had been sleeping since midnight in a little deserted anteroom with three other gentlemen whose wives were enjoying the ball. He threw over her shoulders the wraps he had brought, the modest wraps of common life, the poverty of which contrasted with the elegance of the ball dress. She felt this and wished to escape so as to not be remarked by the other women who were enveloping themselves in costly furs. Loiselle held her back, saying, oh, Wait a bit. You will catch cold outside. I will call a cab. But she did not listen to him and rapidly descended the stairs. When they reached the street, they could not find a carriage and began to look for one, shouting after the cabman passing at a distance. They went toward the Seine in despair, shivering with cold. At last they found on the quay one of those ancient nightcabs which, as though they were ashamed to show their shabbiness during the day, are never seen round Paris till after dark. It took them to their dwelling in the Rue des Martyrs, and sadly they mounted the stairs to their flat. All was ended for her. As to him, he reflected that he must be at the ministry at ten o'clock that morning. She removed her wraps before the glass, so as to see herself once more in all her glory. But suddenly she uttered a cry. <gasps> She no longer had the necklace around her neck. "'What is the matter with you?' demanded her husband, already half undressed. She turned distractedly toward him. "'I have... I have... I've lost Madame Forestier's necklace!' she cried. He stood up, bewildered. "'What? How? Impossible!' They looked among the folds of her skirt, of her cloak, in her pockets, everywhere, but did not find it. "'You're sure you had it on when you left the ball?' he asked. "'Yes, I felt it in the vestibule in the minister's house. "'But if you had lost it in the street, we should have had it fall. "'It must be in the cab.' "'Yes, probably. Did you take his number?' "'No. And you, didn't you notice it?' "'No.' They looked, thunderstruck at each other. At last, Loiselle put on his clothes. "'I shall go back out on foot,' said he over the old route, to see whether I can find it. He went out. She sat waiting on a chair in her ball dress, without strength to go to bed, overwhelmed, without any fire, without a thought. 
Her husband returned about seven o'clock. He had found nothing. He went to police headquarters to the newspaper offices to offer a reward. He went to the cab companies. Everywhere, in fact, whither he was urged by the least spark of hope. She waited all day, in the same condition of mad fear before this terrible calamity. Loiselle returned at night with a hollow, pale face. He had discovered nothing. "'You must write to your friend,' said he, "'that you have broken the clasp of her necklace, and that you are having it mended. That will give us time to turn round.' She wrote at his dictation. At the end of a week they had lost all hope. Loiselle, who had aged five years, declared, "'We must consider how to replace that ornament.' The next day they took the box that had contained it and went to the jeweler whose name was found within. He consulted his books. It was not I, madame, who sold that necklace. I must simply have furnished the case. Then they went from jeweler to jeweler, searching for a necklace like the other, trying to recall it, both sick with chagrin and grief. They found in the shop at the Palais Royal a string of diamonds that seemed to them exactly like the one they had lost. It was worth... Forty thousand francs. They could have it for thirty-six. So they begged the jeweler not to sell it for three days yet, and they made a bargain that he should buy it back for thirty-four thousand francs in case they should find the lost necklace before the end of February. Loiselle possessed eighteen thousand francs which his father had left him. He would borrow the rest. He did borrow, asking a thousand francs of one, five hundred of another, five louis here, three louis there. He gave notes, took up ruinous obligations, dealt with usurers and all the race of lenders. He compromised all the rest of his life, risked signing a note without even knowing whether he could meet it, and, frightened by the trouble yet to come, by the black misery that was about to fall upon him, by the prospect of all the physical privations and moral tortures that he was to suffer, he went to get the new necklace, laying upon the jeweler's counter, 36,000 francs. When Madame Loiselle took back the necklace, Madame Forestier said to her with a chilly manner, you should have returned it sooner. I might have needed it. She did not open the case, as her friend had so much feared. If she had detected the substitution, what would she have thought? What would she have said? Would she not have taken Madame Loiselle for a thief? Thereafter, Madame Loiselle knew the horrible existence of the needy. She bore her part, however, with sudden heroism. The dreadful debt must be paid. She would pay it. They dismissed their servant. They changed their lodgings. They rented a garret under the roof. She came to know what heavy housework meant, and the odious cares of the kitchen. She washed the dishes, using her dainty fingers and rosy nails on greasy pots and pans. She washed the soiled linen, the shirts and the dishcloths, which she dried upon a line. She carried the slops down to the street every morning, and carried up the water, stopping for breath at every landing. And dressed like a woman of the people, she went to the fruiterer, the grocer, the butcher, a basket on her arm, bargaining, meeting with impertinence, defending her miserable money sow by sow. Every month they had to meet some notes, renew others, obtain more time. Her husband worked evenings making up a tradesman's accounts, and late at night he often copied manuscript for five sous a page. This life lasted ten years. At the end of ten years they had paid everything, everything, with the rates of usury and the accumulations of the compound interest. Madame Loiselle looked old now. She had become the woman of impoverished households, strong and hard and rough. With frowsy hair, skirts askew, and red hands, she talked loud while washing the floor with great swishes of water. But sometimes when her husband was at the office, she sat down near the window, and she thought of that gay evening long ago, 
of that ball where she had been so beautiful and so admired. What would have happened if she had not lost that necklace? Who knows? Who knows? How strange and changeful is life. How small a thing is needed to make or ruin us. But one Sunday, having gone to take a walk in the Champs-Élysées to refresh herself after the labors of the week, she suddenly perceived a woman who was leading a child. It was Madame Forestier, still young, still beautiful, still charming. Madame Loiselle felt moved. Should she speak to her? Yes, certainly, and now that she had paid, she would tell her all about it. Why not? She went up. Good day, Jeanne. The other, astonished to be familiarly addressed by this plain good wife, did not recognize her at all and stammered, uh, But, madame, I do not know. Uh, you must have mistaken. No, I am Mathilde Loiselle. Her friend uttered a cry. Oh, my poor Mathilde, how you are changed. Yes, I have had a pretty hard life since I last saw you and great poverty, and that because of you. Of me? How so? Do you remember that diamond necklace you lent to me to wear at the ministerial ball? Yes. Well? Well, I lost it. What do you mean? You brought it back. I brought you back another exactly like it, and it has taken us ten years to pay for it. You can understand that it was not easy for us. For us, who had nothing. At last it is ended, and I am very glad. Madame Forestier had stopped. You say that you brought a necklace of diamonds to replace mine. Yes, you never noticed it then. They were very similar. And she smiled with a joy that was at once proud and ingenious. Madame Forestier, deeply moved, took her hands. Oh, my poor Matilda! Why, my necklace was an imitation. It was worse, at most, only five hundred francs. Found on a Drowned Man by Guy de Maupassant Madame, you ask me whether I am laughing at you? You cannot believe that a man has never been in love. Well then, no, no, I have never loved. Never. Why is this? I really cannot tell. I have never experienced that intoxication of the heart which we call love. Never have I lived in that dream, in that exaltation, in that state of madness into which the image of a woman casts us. I have never been pursued, haunted, roused to fever heat, lifted up to paradise by the thought of meeting or by the possession of a being who had suddenly become for me more desirable than any good fortune, more beautiful than any other creature, of more consequence than the whole world. I have never wept. I have never suffered on account of any of you. I have not passed my nights sleepless while thinking of her, I have no experience of waking thoughts bright with thought and memories of her. I have never known the wild rapture of hope before her arrival, or the divine sadness of regret when she went from me, leaving behind her delicate odor of a violet powder. I have never been in love. I have also often asked myself why this is, and truly, I can scarcely tell. Nevertheless, I have found some reasons for it, but they are of a metaphysical character, and perhaps you will not be able to appreciate them. I suppose I am too critical of women to submit to their fascination. 
I ask you to forgive me for this remark. I will explain what I mean. In every creature, there is a moral being and a physical being. In order to love, it would be necessary for me to find a harmony between these two beings which I have never found. One always predominates, sometimes the moral, sometimes the physical. The intellect, which we have a right to require in a woman in order to love her, is not the same as the virile intellect. It is more and it is less. A woman must be frank, delicate, sensitive, refined, impressionable. She has no need of either power or initiative in thought, but she must have kindness, elegance, tenderness, coquetry, and that faculty of assimilation which, in a little while, raises her to an equality with him who shares her life. Her greatest quality must be tact, that subtle sense which is to the mind what touch is to the body. It reveals to her a thousand little things, contours, angles, and forms on the plane of the intellectual. Very frequently, pretty women have not intellect to correspond with their personal charms. Now, the slightest lack of harmony strikes me and pains me at the first glance. In friendship, this is not of importance. Friendship is a compact in which one fairly shares defects and merits. We may judge of friends, whether men or women, giving them credit for what is good and overlooking what is bad in them, appreciating them at their just value, while giving ourselves up to an intimate, intense, and charming sympathy. In order to love, one must be blind, surrender oneself absolutely, see nothing, question nothing, understand nothing. One must adore the weakness as well as the beauty of the beloved object, renounce all judgment, all reflection, all perspicacity. I am incapable of such blindness and rebel at unreasoning subjugation. This is not all. I have such a high and subtle idea of harmony that nothing can ever fulfill my ideal. But you will call me a madman. <laughs> Listen to me. A woman, in my opinion, may have an exquisite soul and a charming body without that body and that soul being in perfect harmony with one another. I mean that persons who have noses made in a certain shape should not be expected to think in a certain fashion. The fat have no right to make use of the same words and phrases as the thin. You, who have blue eyes, madame, cannot look at life and judge of things and events as if you had black eyes. The shade of your eyes should correspond by a sort of fatality with the shade of your thought. In perceiving these things, I have the scent of a bloodhound. Laugh if you like, but it is so. And yet, once I imagined that I was in love for an hour, for a day, I had foolishly yielded to the influence of surrounding circumstances. I allowed myself to be beguiled by a mirage of dawn. Would you like me to tell you this short story? Huh. I met one evening a pretty, enthusiastic little woman who took a poetic fancy to spend a night with me in a boat on a river. I would have preferred a room and a bed. However, I consented to the river and the boat. It was in the month of June. My fair companion chose a moonlight night in order to better stimulate her imagination. We had dined in the Riverside Inn, and set out in a boat about ten o'clock. <laughs> I had thought it a rather foolish kind of adventure, but as my companion pleased me, I did not worry about it. I sat down on the seat facing her. I seized the oars, and off we started. I could not deny that the scene was picturesque. We glided past a wooded isle full of nightingales, and the current carried us rapidly over the river covered with silvery ripples. The tree toads uttered their shrill, monotonous cry. The frogs croaked in the grass by the river's bank, and the lapping of the water as it flowed on made around us a kind of confused murmur, almost imperceptible, disquieting, and gave us a vague sensation of mysterious fear. The sweet charm of warm nights and of streams glittering in the moonlight penetrated us. 
It was delightful to be alive and float along thus, and to dream and to feel at one side a sympathetic and beautiful young woman. I was somewhat affected, somewhat agitated, somewhat intoxicated by the pale brightness of the night and the consciousness of my proximity to a lovely woman. Come and sit beside me, she said. I obeyed. She went on. Recite some poetry for me. This appeared to be rather too much. I declined. She persisted. She certainly wanted to play the game, to have a whole orchestra of sentiment, from the moon to the rhymes of the poets. In the end, I had to yield, and, as if in mockery, I repeated to her a charming little poem by Louis Bollier, of which the following are the last verses. I hate the poet who, with tearful eye, murmurs some name while gazing towards a star, who sees no magic in the earth or sky, unless Lisette or Ninon not be far. The bard who in all nature nothing sees divine, unless a petticoat he ties amorously to the branches of the trees, or nightcap to the grass is scarcely wise. He has not heard the eternal's thunder tone, the voice of nature in her various moods, who cannot tread the dim ravines alone, and of no woman dream mid-whispering woods. I expected some reproaches, nothing of the sort, she murmured. How true it is. I was astonished. Had she understood? Our boat had gradually approached the bank and become entangled in the branches of a willow which impeded its progress. I placed my arm round my companion's waist and very gently approached my lips towards her neck. But she repulsed me with an abrupt, angry movement. I've done, pray. How rude you are. I tried to draw her toward me. She resisted, caught hold of the tree, and was near flinging us both into the water. I deemed it prudent to cease my importunities. She said, I would rather capsize you. I feel so happy. I want to dream. This is so delightful. Then, in a slightly malicious tone, she added, Have you already forgotten the verses you repeated to me just now? She was right. I became silent. She went on. Come now. And I plied the oars once more. I began to think the night long and my position ridiculous. My companion said to me, Will you make me a promise? Yes, what is it? To remain quiet, well behaved, and discreet, if I permit you... What? Say what you mean. Here is what I mean. I want to lie down on my back at the bottom of the boat with you by my side. But I forbid you to touch me, to embrace me, in short, to caress me. I promised. She said warningly, If you move, I'll capsize the boat. And then we lay down side by side, our eyes turned toward the sky, while the boat glided slowly through the water. We were rocked by its gentle motion. The slight sounds of the night came to us more distinctly in the bottom of the boat, sometimes causing us to start. And I felt springing up within me a strange, poignant emotion, an infinite tenderness, something like an irresistible impulse to open my arms in order to embrace, to open my heart in order to love, to give myself, to give my thoughts, my body, my life, my entire being to someone. My companion murmured like one in a dream, where are we? Where are we going? It seems to me that I am leaving the earth. Oh, how sweet it is. Ah, uh, if you loved me a little. My heart began to throb. I had no answer to give. It seemed to me that I loved her. I had no longer any violent desire. I felt happy there by her side. And that was enough for me. And thus we remained for a long, long time, without stirring. 
We had clasped each other's hands. Some delightful force rendered us motionless. An unknown force stronger than ourselves. An alliance, chaste, intimate, absolute of our beings lying there side by side, belonging to each other without contact. What was this? How do I know? Love, perhaps? Well, little by little, the dawn appeared. It was three o'clock in the morning. Slowly, a great brightness spread over the sky. The boat knocked up against something. I rose up. Well, we had come close to a tiny islet. But I remained enchanted, in an ecstasy. Before us stretched the firmament, red, pink, violet, spotted with fiery clouds resembling golden vapor. The river was glowing with purple, and three houses on one side seemed to be burning. I bent toward my companion. I was going to say, oh, look, but I held my tongue, quite dazed, and I could no longer see anything except her. She too was rosy, with rosy flesh tints and a deeper tinge that was partly a reflection of the hue of the sky. Her tresses were rosy. Her eyes were rosy. Her teeth were rosy. Her dress, her laces, her smile, all were rosy. And in truth, I believed so overpowering was the illusion that dawn was there in the flesh before me. She rose softly to her feet, holding out her lips to me, and I moved toward her, trembling, delirious, feeling indeed that I was going to kiss heaven, to kiss happiness, to kiss a dream that had become a woman, to kiss the ideal which had descended into human flesh. She said to me, You have a caterpillar in your air. And suddenly I felt as sad as if I had lost all hope in life. That is all, madame. It is puerile, silly, stupid. But I am sure that since that day it would be impossible for me to love. And yet, who can tell? The young man upon whom this letter was found was yesterday taken out of the Seine between Borval and Marley. An obliging bargeman who had searched the pockets in order to ascertain the name of the deceased brought this paper to the author. I usually have a little quip at the end of these stories, a la Alfred Hitchcock on the old Alfred Hitchcock Presents shows. But in the light of the stories that we just heard, just remember, folks, live your life with no regrets. One other note about the second story. I didn't want to say it beforehand because I didn't want to taint the listening experience any. But that story really reminded me of the old Christopher Walken sketches on Saturday Night Live where he's talking to the camera in his hotel suite and it's, uh, you know, super creepy. Well, maybe that's just me. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Stories of Your and Yours, and if you did, I'd love it if you spread the word. If you've got a story to submit to the show, or if you have a request for a short story, send it to syypodcast at gmail.com, or hit me up at the aforementioned social media handles. Thanks to FreePD and Incompetech.com for this week's music, and for a full list of music and sound effect credits, please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. Next week is a bit of a departure for the show. We'll be covering, by request, some fairy tales and folklore. But while this isn't the Brothers Grimm or Hans Christian Andersen, you may find that some of it sounds pretty familiar. Until then, this has been episode 18 of Stories of Your and Yours. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>